So Matthew 27, starting in verse 62, says, Now, the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. For fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, fear, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear, and great joy, and did run to bring the disciples' word. I'm going to stop there and pray before I continue. Lord, before we carry on this morning, I just need to ask, Lord, that you would just guide my thoughts, um, help me as I preach this message this morning. Lord, that um, my heart would be ready to receive this, um, and that each of us here would have a desire to, to grow closer to you, um, that your word would speak in our hearts, God, this morning. So just ask again for your, your guidance and your strength this morning, in Christ's name. What I find amazing as I read this story, and we'll continue, I'm going to go to, to Luke chapter 24 if you want to start turning there. But in this passage of where I began to read, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they come together and go to Pilate and say, we remember that that deceiver said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. The Pharisees and the priests Remember that Jesus said it. You know they're the only ones that seem to remember that? These women didn't show up at Jesus' tomb expecting to find an empty tomb. They expected to bring spices to apply to a dead body. They were shocked at the message that the angel, like that he's risen. They were shocked. And we're going to read a little bit more of the response of the disciples. 
And they, likewise, are shocked at this message. They're surprised and unbelieving even when they're told that this is what happened. The only people that actually remembered that he said that he was going to do this was the people that didn't believe in him. How weird is that? Luke 24. I'm going to read um, well, a couple of different sections of it. I'll start in verse 1 to read the, get the first part here going. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, I mentioned they were shocked. <laughs> They're much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee? Saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. The disciples, <laughs> the people who followed him everywhere, heard every message that he preached, saw every miracle that he did, watched him walk across water, watched him cast demons out of a maniac, watched him, like, you name it, anything that Jesus did, they were there and saw it. They heard every word he preached, and yet... The Pharisees and the priests actually knew that they needed to put a guard there to prevent the disciples from stealing the body to make it look like he had risen from the dead because they knew that's what he said he was going to do. And yet the disciples, this thought never even occurred to them that they might, like, it hasn't occurred to them that he would actually do what he said he was going to do, that he would rise from the dead. And so these women, and by the way, these women, so they were perplexed, like they were shocked at the angels announcing to them that Jesus isn't in that tomb, that he is risen from the dead, that he's not there. They're shocked. But Jesus actually met them as they, like they believed the angels. Like it says, don't you remember that he said? And then it says they remembered. And when they remembered, they believed it. And Jesus actually met them along the way. Matthew tells us that Jesus met them along the way on their way to go tell the disciples. So they've seen Jesus resurrected already. So not only did they have this experience with the angels, they see this miraculous thing take place, but they see Jesus himself risen from the dead. And now they show up, and the eleven 
disciples. Remember, Judas is not there, obviously. But verse 11, like when they tell them what took place, we were there, there's an earthquake, there's these shining men, and they give us this message that Jesus is risen, and then we're coming here, and, and he shows up, and, and we saw him alive, and he said he's going to meet you in Galilee. In verse 11, it says, Their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Idle tales. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, what did, did they not believe who Jesus was? They said they did. They said they believed he was the Messiah. Let's keep reading. In, we'll start in verse 13 again here. <clears throat> It says, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. Anybody have a different translation that tells us how far that is? Seven miles. Seven miles. That's a a good walk. (laughs) And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things that are come to pass there these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening. And the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. His disciples, there's two of them, walking along, talking about what is going on. They've already heard this message from the women. John and Peter have already ran 
to the, to the tomb to see what, just to confirm that it's actually empty the way the women said, because they didn't believe the story. And now they're just dumbstruck, like walking along, whining, moaning, complaining, like feeling sorry for themselves, because we, we thought this guy was going to redeem Israel. Like we thought this was going to be a, a, the king and like take over and like destroy Rome. <laughs> it was coming, guys. Don't worry. The disciples, two of the disciples, are walking a seven-mile journey. Not sure how much of that Jesus was walking with them, but probably a good portion of it. It takes a while to walk seven miles. They've walked and talked. He opens the scriptures to them to explain what Christ was supposed to actually be that he would actually suffer and die as the scriptures said. That exactly what took place is exactly what was supposed to take place. And yet through all of that, they didn't recognize him. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. <laughs> Remember somewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching and says, if, if you say thou fool, you're in danger of hellfire. What do you mean you can't call someone a fool? He's, he does it. <laughs> it just means like you've got to be thoughtful. It has to be an appropriate time to call a person a fool, apparently. And this was the, the right time when... The disciples that are talking to Jesus don't know that they're talking to Jesus. This would be the right time to call a person a fool. Don't you know? Like, how many times did he say this is exactly what was going to happen? And they don't get it. It says he started at Moses. Like, where's Moses? Moses is like Genesis? <laughs> That's, that's pretty early on in, in this book. And through all the prophets. Can you imagine the Bible study that you could have with Jesus explaining that to you? <laughs> I suspect he does a better job than I could. But my question, we look at this and, okay, I can criticize the disciples all day long over these things. But what about us? How often in our lives is God standing right there doing miracles, holding us up, protecting us, guiding us, lighting our path, turning us from danger, and we haven't got a clue that he's there. We miss his presence completely. I guess the better question is, are you even looking? These disciples weren't looking. They didn't think that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't think 
that it was even possible that that would be him walking beside them. Did they even look? Do we even look? Do we even think that God is capable, that God might show his presence somewhere in our lives? Remember verse 11 here in, in Luke 24 says their words, the women's words, seemed to them, the disciples, as idle tales. Is that all the Bible is to you, to us? Is it just idle tales? Is it just like a storybook with all these sometimes really strange stories? But is it just stories? Or do you actually believe the message that's in there? When you come to church on Sunday and you're listening to some guy babble on for an hour, it's me usually, is it just idle tales? Am I just talking? <laughs> Am I just like trying to use these stories to create some kind of moral compass to, to guide us in life? That Here's how you live a good life. It's not the point, if, if you've missed that. If, it, if that's all it is to you, you're missing it. <laughs> if, if, you don't, if you're not looking for God's presence to actually notably show up in your life, you're missing it. <laughs> You've missed the whole point. What do we, what do we want from God. When we show up at church on Sunday morning, if we're reading our Bible through the week, we'd spend time in prayer. What do we want? What are we looking for from God? Are we, do we want the problems in our life to just go away? Most of us do. <laughs> we, you know, our entire prayer list is praying that God will take our problems away, right? So, and I, I can't quote it quite right. Charles Spurgeon made a quote that there is trouble in everything except pancakes. <laughs> everything in life has trouble. And God's not taking away all of our problems. That's not the promises in Scripture. Like, he promises... You are going to have troubles in this life. So what are, what are we coming to God for? If it's not to take away our problems, if, he's, if we're coming to God and he promises more problems, but he says, I'll give you life. I'll give it to you abundantly. There, um, there was a Christian comedian who says, you know, life is made up of, of ups and downs. Right? We have our highs and our lows, and so if God's going to give us life more abundantly, now it's <laughs> bigger ups and bigger downs. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> what it's like, isn't it? Yeah, we get some, some mountaintop experiences, and it's awesome. But then you hit the valley, and it's not so awesome. But where's, what are we looking for from God? Like, we just want to live on the mountaintop, and everything's happy and pretty, and no trouble. Yeah, the air is thin up there, guys. 
Go climb Everest. <laughs> they die up there. You can die spiritually up on these mountaintops. Because God's not doing anything. You're not experiencing anything. You have no need. If you've got a problem in life, well, now I need God. We have some prayers, like, we go through life and, like, just day to day and we go through our business and no big deal. But when some vein blows up in your brain or yes, I stepped off a step stool again this week and landed on the floor on my back. My knee just gave out again. But you know what? Man, I got hardly little to complain about when I look around. But we need, to, we need the problems so that we can understand our need for God. If we're looking for signs and wonders, yeah, we can pray. And we can expect God to answer. God's entirely capable of taking that thing out of your head and fixing it. He took that baby on death's door in ICU. And a week later, it's at home with its mother. God's capable. We know countless stories of people who should be dead. And yet they're alive. God's capable. And we can trust him and pray and ask but taking away our problems isn't always what's best for us. And sometimes we can look and we'll see God in the midst of our problems. And we miss him entirely when the problems are absent. When we're praying for healing, how do you pray? Do you expect an answer? <laughs> yes. We ought to. We ought to. There's a problem in the disciples here. They claim to believe. When Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of God. And yet they didn't believe when they were told that he had actually risen from the dead the way he said he was going to do? Do you believe that he can heal you? That he can raise your loved ones? That he can work in someone's heart and change their heart and turn them to Christ? He can. We need to depend on him for this stuff. We need to have a little bit of faith. Here's a question. What's the purpose of Jesus' resurrection? What's the purpose of his resurrection? I'm sure there's more than what I'm going to show you this morning, but if you want to turn to Romans, there's a couple of answers given here. Romans chapter 1 to start with.
Romans 1 verse 3 says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be the Son of God with power. <laughs> Isn't that like... He overcame death. <laughs> like, if there's power, like, there's no greater power than to be able to overcome death. And yet that's the power. But he's declared to be the Son of God with power. He is the Son of God. So that's part of the purpose of the resurrection is to declare Jesus as the Son of God. Over a couple pages in chapter 4, we get to verse 25. Uh, verse 24 says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What's the requirement? Verse 24 says, if we believe. So you need to believe what comes in verse 25. It says he's delivered for our offenses. Man, I got some offenses. <laughs> I, I got problems in my life that I, I, I do some things, I think some things, I say some things. My relationship with my wife and kids isn't what it ought to be. I'm not the man that I ought to be. I, there's many areas that I can look through this book and see like, well, it's talking to me. I need, I need to change. But you know what all that is? And Galatians tells us the whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of all of this instruction of morality, of how we ought to live, the entire point is just to prove to us that we are not. that we are worthless sinners deserving of God's wrath because of our offenses. But verse 25 says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses. God, despite our offenses, loved us enough to send his son to take our place and to take the penalty of our offenses on him who knew no sin. He's delivered for our offenses, not for his, for ours. We can put our, if we believe on him, all of our sin gets placed on him and the punishment for it was born on that cross. But it's important that's, that's not the end. It's important that that's not the end. It says he was raised again for our justification. What does that mean? It means like, it's not just paid for, but like, I don't just not have to serve the punishment for my sin, but I get a, 
I, I get a home in heaven with Christ. Like I get, I get to inherit God's kingdom as a son of God. That's what justification is. I'm now declared a son of God. Wow. Just because I believed that Jesus did that for me. Just because I believed that he rose from the dead. That's a good deal. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this a little bit more. Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13. I'm just going to read a couple of broken pieces of this instead of the whole thing. But verse 13 says, But if there was no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith also is vain. That's a scary thought. There's no point of any of us sitting here this morning if Christ isn't risen from the dead. Verse 16 says, For if the dead rise not, then is Christ, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. It's, a, it's essential that he was raised from the dead. And verse 20 says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. For since by man cometh death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we got a hope that's beyond hope. It's like, this, this life is not the end. There is a resurrection available and we get a new life in Christ. We get rid of this vile body and we get a perfect one. There's the point of the resurrection. <laughs> so where is our hope? What is our hope based in? Where, why do you come to God for this salvation? Is it a fear of death? A fear of hell? There's a lot of fear of death going on. We've seen that over the last couple of years, right? But is that the reason we come to God? Is because we're afraid of death? We're afraid of an eternity of death? An eternity of hell? Is that the reason? Is that our motivation? Is that where our hope is? Is just escaping this? Or is it the opposite of that? Is it eternal life? this promise of glory and wonderful things for eternity. It's the escape, right? Or is it escaping from this world, the problems that we have in this world? Is that why we're coming to God? Is to escape our problems. What's our motivation? Well, I don't have all the possible scenarios of what your motivation might have been to come to God. But I have a couple of answers what the Bible describes that it ought to be. And the first one we'll see in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 
Philippians 3, uh, starting in verse 8, says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I'll read just a couple more verses here. Um, Verse 20 and 21. It says, For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the savior the lord jesus christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself now there's some strange things in this Verse 10 said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But you know, the next two things is not exactly what most of us are looking for when we come to God, when we're looking to Christ for answers in this life. It says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Well, that wasn't what I was hoping for. I didn't want more problems. I didn't want to be threatened with a, a, a terrible, painful death. And yet, how many Christians in history have gone through some of the most horrific deaths you could imagine? Gladly, for Christ's sake. Just, there's no way you could get me to deny him. There's a faith that's unimaginable. I hope we have that kind of faith when the time comes. It may be coming. But you know what, Paul? Paul's answer to this question, what was your motivation of coming to Christ? Verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. Those disciples sitting in that room Women came. It's like idle tales. It's just you're you're just making up stories. It's like they couldn't fathom. They couldn't believe what was being said to them. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, talking with Christ Himself, and not having a clue who they're talking to. Spent three and a half years with Him. They didn't know him. Paul starts off his life killing people that are following Jesus. But boy, did he turn around when he, when he understood who, who he was. When he understood that that cross gave him, and that resurrection gave him forgiveness of sin and, and a hope of a, a resurrection himself, 
He's like, man, I need to know him. Is that your desire? Do you want to know him? We sit here and we said we don't recognize him half the time. We don't even realize what God's doing in our lives. We're probably not even looking for him most of the time. Do you want to know him? That's we need to want to know him. If your answer is yes, careful answering out loud to, to these questions, because I might <laughs> listen to some preaching last night, and the guy says, you know, I'm preaching at this revival meeting, and you're coming every, every day through the week and listening to my preaching, and I've had a few guys come up to me and say, yeah, you've really challenged us this week. You know what his answer is? Challenge you, but have I changed you? Has the challenge caused a change in you at all? Or is it just a challenge? Is it, is it just revealing what's going on, but no change taking place? Do you really want to know him? How bad? These messages I've been listening to, the shortest one was an hour and a half. I've been in churches, I've preached at churches where I was told to limit to 20 minutes preaching. I was threatened that they would shut off my mic if I went beyond. I had preached there before, by the way. How bad do you want to know him? Is 20 minutes too long in your week? I'm encouraging you to read your Bibles and the, the New Testament reading schedule this is 5 by 5 by 5 the average person reading can read the entire New Testament in a year 5 minutes 5 days a week how many Christians do it? 5 minutes a day do you really want to know him? will you give him 5 minutes of your day? How much time How much time do we spend scrolling on YouTube or Facebook or, or whatever, looking at nonsense? It used to be television, right? Like this thing that just kind of streamed into the house and you just turn the thing on and when we, when, when we never really had cable much, but if you had cable, like you'd sit there with your remote going click. Click, click, right? You can spend an hour easy just trying to find something to watch and then you just watch some stupid thing because you can't find anything better. But you wouldn't dream of spending that time in your Bible and prayer and getting to know God and yet when you're challenged on Sunday morning you're like, do you want to know him? Yeah. Well, spend some time. How much time are you willing to put into it? If your preacher goes over, oh, look, it's two minutes to 12. It's time to stop, right? Is, this, is, there, is there a deadline here that, man, we, we can't go over this kind of... Well, I don't want to sit and listen for that long. I'm not, I'm not talking about 
I don't know, I've never heard a word from anybody <laughs> complaining about how long my sermons are. But I'm, is this ringing a bell at all? How, how much time, how much effort are you willing to put into getting to know him? It ought to be a driving thing in our life. That, man, it ought to be the driving thing in our life. It ought to be the focus of our spare time. And when I have a moment, do I pull out my Bible and read it? Or do I... Man, we, we're spoiled. Like I can, around my house, the internet works everywhere. My phone is in my pocket and I can be playing preaching or someone reading the Bible like all day. Hour, like, oh, I go to work. Okay, there's 24 hours in a day. You're at work, maybe 10 of those away from home, sleeping for, well, a few of them, six to eight maybe. There's a bunch of hours left. You could be listening to a lot of preaching. You could be spending a lot of time reading God's Word, getting to know Him. And yet, we waste time looking at stupid videos of cats and <laughs> whatever. We ought, our motivation ought to be that, that I would know Him. And there's one more motivation that should be a driver in our lives. We'll see it in, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, I'll just start in verse 1. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not only should we be striving to know him, but we should be striving to be like him. It says, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. How much of the world are we chasing after? How much are we trying to be like the world? It might be a problem, right? The world's not supposed to know us because it didn't know him. As in, we ought to be like him in that sense. Like, our life should be a reflection of who Christ is, who God is. It ought to change us. As I get to know him, it needs to change me so that I become like him. This, 
The thing the world doesn't understand about the Christian faith, the thing that I think most professing Christians don't understand about the Christian faith, it's not like other religions. I am not studying this book, trying to learn how to behave in a way that is going to make me acceptable to God, that I can have a better next life. Right? That's, that's what religion does. Is it teaches us how to live, to try to achieve a better afterlife of whatever sort that might be. It's not what Christianity is. Not in the slightest. And it gets confused because there's a lot of morality taught in the Bible. It does tell us how we ought to live. But none of it is, the purpose is never to bring us to be achieve goodness before God that I'm ever going to be acceptable in his sight. I'll never be. It's very clear. If, we were to, if we're going to try to keep the law, if, 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 if the instructions here of how to live is going to get me to that place, then I need to keep every bit of it 100% without one flaw. And Jesus' answer to somebody when he, he came in was like, good master, what must I do? He says, why are you calling me good? There's no one good. It's like, Jesus wasn't denying his goodness, but he's just like, you ought to know better than to call any man good. Because any man is not good. I am not a good man. I'm a flawed man. That when I leave here this morning, I'm going to sin again. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to sin some more. And regardless of the changes that I make, regardless of the improvements that I make, I'll never completely stop. There will be something else in my life that God can work on and improve and change that needs to change. Right to the end. So how... I said, this isn't going to achieve it. I can't... No matter how good I get, I'll never be acceptable in God's sight. Because God requires perfection. But I think I read it this morning in Romans... When I put my faith in what Christ did on the cross, when I believe that that paid for my sin, it says I get his righteousness. He took my sin, I get his righteousness. It's an exchange. So now it's not about my righteousness and me achieving worth before God. Like, oh, I, I've already came to the conclusion that I don't have it and I can't get it. But Christ did. And when I put my faith in what he did, I get his righteousness applied to me. And now God looks at me and says, because of him, you're acceptable before me. Man, what a difference in religion, right? I'm not achieving this myself. All of this is just to bring me to the point where I need him more than anything. More and more, I need him. And the more I get to know of him, the more I see my need for him. And it should draw me closer every day. It should show me my need to know him more and to be more like him.
because of what he's done, because he transferred his righteousness to me before God's eyes. I ought to want to know him more. I ought to be looking for that resurrected Christ in my life, believing that I can see him working and living, guiding, working in my life, right? Bow our heads. I don't do altar calls generally. But this morning, I'm not going to call people to stand up or put their hand up or anything like that. God knows. Are you saved this morning? Have you put your faith in Christ? I've tried to explain it this morning as clear as I can at this point, but if you don't understand that yet, please come and talk to me at some point. Make sure that you understand that. Make sure that you have that. If if you have that, if you're trust in Christ as your Savior, but your life isn't what you know that it ought to be. If you're not looking for God in your life, if you're not spending the time trying to get to know Him, would you commit to doing that? I'm afraid. Lord God, as we look at these events in your word, see the disciples, the disbelief in their hearts, Lord, their their lack of understanding of who Christ was, what his purpose was. Oh, but what a change when they realized. They gave their lives willingly to be tortured. For your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of giving that message to anyone that would hear it, God. Lord, we just I just pray that you would work in our hearts to put that um, that need, that burning desire to get to know you better, Lord. That desire as we get to know you, to be more like you. Help us, God, in this and pray in Jesus' name.